uh, we just started actually and are moving through a sermon series called that we're calling The Life of Jesus. Um, but we're kind of tracking the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew specifically. So um, if you know how the New Testament is set up, there are four different Gospel accounts, four different accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're tracking with Matthew um, through, through his account of Jesus' life. Um, and we're going to track with that through, from now until um, Easter, actually right after Easter. And so, but before we get into the text, before we get into the story, I just wanted to start by saying that if you know anything about the Enneagram, um, I am, and the Enneagram's not satanic, um, <laughs> I just want to make that clear. Um, the, uh, it's a personality typology system. It has kind of an unfortunate name. Um, but I'm a seven. If you know anything about it, I'm a seven. Um, that's my number. And what that means is that I, my personality type, I love to flee from anything painful. Anything that does not feel good, I just run away from it. I kind of live in denial of pain. Um, I say things a lot like, oh, it's not that bad. I've learned to stop saying this to my wife. Um, it's not that bad, or it could be worse, or think about the positive way to look at this. That's just where I sit. I love to dream, if any, especially if something's uncomfortable in the moment, I love to dream about what fun things might be coming in the future, so as to avoid sitting in the discomfort, what's hard. Um, maybe you can relate to that. But here's the thing. We, we live in a world that is racked with hard things, with pain, with brokenness, suffering. Scripture itself, in the New Testament, Scripture says that creation itself, this is a hard thing to even wrap your mind around, but creation itself is groaning in anticipation of being freed from everything that's wrong, from sin and evil. It's, being, it's like groaning to be freed from that, liberated from that. And I, I feel like, honestly, I feel like I hardly need to remind us of that right now in particular. Like, there's just so much going on uh, in the world that's hard, has been hard for a long time, and there's things in our community that are hard. Um, there's a very, very dear and beloved member of our community who is suffering from terribly from cancer right now. Uh, multiple people have cancer, actually, in our community. Um, and so part of me feels like I hardly need to remind us of this right now. I feel like we're being reminded of it just in, in what's going on. Um, but I wanted to start here, um, because I actually want this morning, it's a, it feels like a hard, difficult task, but I want to walk through an honest look at pain, um, and suffering this morning. I want to be able to say, especially as a seven, <laughs> I want myself and for us, I want us to be able to look, look around and to say, instead of saying, oh, it's not that bad, or, oh, look at the positive way to look at this. I want us to be able to look at it and actually say, no. Everything's not fine. Um, there are things that are really wrong. There are things that are really unjust. Because I think glossing over what's wrong, just papering over it, denying it, it, it prevents us from getting to a point that we really need to actually get to. Because I think when we get really gritty, when we can get really gritty and honest, and actually triads, I wasn't going to say this, but actually triads are a great space for this getting really gritty and honest about brokenness that we experience and feel, it's when, we, it's when we get there and then we just finally say, I can't fix this. Like, I can't do it. When we get to that point, that's where we can finally urgently plead for divine help. We can plead for someone outside of us to come fix what is wrong. And so I think that is the trajectory, I think, by by unflinchingly facing what's dark and what's unjust and what hurts and what's wrong, 
that is what helps us develop the very hunger and thirst for righteousness that actually Jesus himself would say would be where we're blessed. It's when you hunger, like hunger for it. We have so many tools in our culture to avoid our hunger, right? Literal hunger, but actually even deeper spiritual hunger. We have so many tools to just avoid it. And I want to stop avoiding it because I want us to hunger and thirst in the way that Jesus promised we'd be blessed for. Like actually really long for it. Not just say we want it, but really want it. And I'm starting, I'm starting here on all this because we're going to look at a dark story in Matthew. Um, we're going to look at the story, if you know it, we're going to look at the story of King Herod ordering the killing of children in and around Bethlehem because he wanted to exterminate Jesus before he could grow up because Jesus was prophesied as the king of the Jews, right? And so I got to be honest, um, a couple things. This is the first time I've studied, like really studied this story since I've had kids. Um, and whew, <laughs> I have to say that it, it takes on an entirely new gravity um, after that experience. But also, just given everything I've been saying, what we've been through, what's going on in our community, just what we've been through in the world, um, and also that I'm a seven, <laughs> part of me wanted to just skip it. I like had real serious like soul wrestling match. Be like, can we just maybe like go to chapter three? I don't want to talk about this. Um, but then I realized that would be me living in my denial <laughs> that I just talked about. So um, I want to step into it. Um, because as someone, personally, as someone who tends to run away from hard things, I've learned, I am learning with God's gracious help that growth, I think the growth and wisdom and maturity that all of us want and that I want for us as a community of people, that comes from developing an ability to actually sit in pain. Um, not to wallow in it, but just to acknowledge it. To not avoid suffering that's inevitable. Um, because, because we do believe that Jesus, him, I think this is really important, Jesus himself had the opportunity to avoid suffering. We believe that God incarnate had, I believe, he had the genuine opportunity to avoid suffering. And what did he do when he had that opportunity? He said, not my will, but yours be done. And so on a corporate level, as a community, that's what I want for myself. I want to be able to say, not my will, but yours be done. But on a community, corporate level, I want us as a community to, to be able to lean into that. Because I think we'll grow and meet, I think we'll meet God in that. I think the Holy Spirit will enliven us in that by talking honestly, starting by talking honestly about pain and brokenness. So that's the posture I'm coming at this text. That's the posture I'm coming um, at this story and the posture I'm coming to you with this morning. I don't want to pretend things aren't bad, but I don't want to abandon hope. And I think our culture, um, I'm just, I'm thinking of my neighbors, I'm thinking of people I talk to who are not part of the church who wouldn't say they believe. I think our culture and our, our city has had enough of glossing over and papering over, pretending that things are all right when they really aren't. Um, And I think our culture is tired of simplistic, prosperity-based, positivity, religion. Ethan talked about toxic positivity a few months ago. And I think people resonate with the ability, when when you're with someone who has the ability to say, yeah, things are not great, and I don't have an easy explanation for it, but here's why I still believe. I think that, is a powerful thing. And, and I really believe if the church, us specifically as a community, but the church more broadly, if the church is going to have any, any amount of prophetic power in our culture to speak into pain, we have to be ones who can look at darkness, at brokenness, and evil and pro- still proclaim hope 
from that place, from a place that's really in touch with what is wrong. Because when our culture senses that we are people who are, who are in touch with broken reality, who get it, we get it, and yet we're deeply at peace and hopeful, then I think they're going to listen to why we believe and what we believe. Because when we see how bad things really are, we get, we get a renewed belief in how great the one who is rescuing us is. When we really see how bad things are, then we, we see how great the rescuer is. And so scripture, and this is why I think part of why scripture has hard parts in it, actually. It helps us cultivate that. And that's my hope for us this morning. That's my long introduction to the story. That's my approach. How do we hold together, through this whole story, I'm thinking about how do we hold together darkness, being in touch with darkness, but being in touch with hope? How does the life of Jesus in this particular slice of Jesus' life guide us through those two things? Um, and so this story is building off of the story we, I talked about last week, which was the visit of the wise men, which is kind of a like cozy, comforting Christmas story, right? And then it goes right into, it actually is a prelude to a very, very dark thing, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, so let me pray for the rest of our time. Um, oh, Lord, we need your, I need your spirit. Help me walk through this story in a way that honors true hope but does not shy away from suffering. Help us do something new in us as a community as we look at this, Lord. Stir us up to hope, to true hope in you that's confident, um, but not denial. In your holy name I pray, amen. So I want to step through the story now. You can turn to Matthew 2 um, if you have a text near you or with you. Um, we're going to look at basically the second half of Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to step through the story in three parts. Um, and I'm going to read, I mean, it's actually pretty short, so I'm just going to read it, read through it, um, and comment on it. So starting in verse 13, this is the NRSV translation. I'll take a sip of my coffee. Again, this is right after the wise men have left. Um, verse 13 says, now after they, meaning the wise men, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So where is darkness and where is hope here in these verses? Well, Joseph, Mary's husband, Here's in a dream about fleeing to safety and then moves the family. Stop and think about that for a second. That's why I underlined that. Would you move your entire family to another country on the basis of a dream? That is a wild thing to consider. Part of me wanted to go into like the spirituality of dreams and how actually there are, I don't know what to do with this, but there are people around the world who hear from God in dreams. Like that's a thing that happens right now, is happening particularly in a lot of places in the Muslim world, there's a lot of stories of pretty wild things happening. It's hard for us, and I think our Western disenchanted kind of drained of spirituality culture has a hard time to know what to do with that. But, well, I said I wasn't going to go into it, and then I went into it. Um, but park that, keep that in mind. I think that's important, something to pay attention to there. But would you move your entire family on the basis of a dream? I, don't, I, I can't imagine that. But I want to emphasize that they went by night, they fled from a dire warning. That's dark, that's dark, that's fearful. That must have been uncertain. It must have been hard. What were the conversations between Mary and Joseph like as they left and as they traveled? Like, what's Herod going to do? What's going to happen? Can we, is this the right thing to do? You know, how long are we supposed to stay there? Where are we going to live when we get there? 
Who's going to take care of us while we're there? I mean, so many questions, right? It's dark. But there's a thread of hope here as well. Darkness and hope. When you look at the quotation from Hosea, which comes from Hosea 11, if you want to write that down. This is, this is the actual verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is a depiction um, of the Exodus going through the Red Sea. It's a famous story. I'm sure you've probably all heard it. This is a thread of hope here, because the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament was talking about God rescuing Israel out of Egypt, which is known as the Exodus. And the Exodus is such an important story for the Jewish people, because listen, listen to this. It is evidence in their story as a people. It is evidence that God did not ignore their pain and their suffering as a people. God did not ignore it. And more than that, not only did God not ignore it, but God bent down into it to rescue them out of it, out of their slavery, literal slavery in Egypt. God rescued them. And the Jews always remembered this event <clears throat> as a foundational pillar of their faith, their story, their religion, their God. It's why they celebrate Passover. Still to this day, Jews celebrate Passover every year. It's to commemorate this. And so, I think that Matthew, by including this quotation, remember, I've said this before, remember, when these ancient writers were writing on paper, I mean, paper was rare, ink was rare. I mean, you did not waste space when you wrote things down like this. When he is quoting a book like Hosea, he is signaling, look at this event, look at this story. I think Matthew is signaling to the reader of this story, of Jesus' story, that Jesus is beginning our exodus a new exodus out of what enslaves us, which is sin and death and evil and brokenness and injustice and pain. God did an exodus of his people in ancient times, and now a new exodus is starting through Jesus out of Egypt, so to speak, out of our slavery. The exodus historically out of Egypt was a rescue for a specific people so that God could eventually do an exodus for all people. This is who this God is. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is this God born in flesh to rescue. This is a thread of hope in the middle of darkness, in the middle of a family fleeing to Egypt at night. This is a thread of hope. Picking up the story in verse 16. And this is, this is, the, this is the, hard, the hardest part of this story. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, because if you remember the story last week, he asked them to come back to him and tell him where Jesus was. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by them, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. So all that this means is that it had been about two years since this all had transpired, and this is why Herod gives his order. Then was fulfilled, here's another quotation, well, here, then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. It's from Jeremiah 31. This is the, this is the terrifying heart of this story. And I want to say, this is a depiction of Herod. I want to say a few things about Herod to kind of fill this out a little bit. Herod was, Herod was a brutal and politically brilliant um, especially militarily, he fought in at least 10 wars. He was the king of Judah for a long time. He accumulated a lot of power over his life. He developed an intense paranoia and mental illness by the end of his life. He grew exceedingly 
mentally unstable, paranoid. We have a lot of uh, kind of historical doc because he was such a he was known as Herod the Great. He built lots of buildings. He, he transformed the landscape of the kingdom of Judea. Judea. Um, because of all this, we have actually a lot of documentation about things that he did um, outside of the scriptures. And so here's just a few examples of who Herod was. He was known to kill off members of his own family when they would get too popular and he would get paranoid about um, their popularity and possibly being a political rival for his own rule. He, he had two of his own sons executed because they were getting too popular in the kingdom. He had married at least 10 wives, and his most popular and beloved wife he also had killed. And apparently he wandered through the palace after he, after he ordered his, her own execution, he wandered through the palace saying her name. Um, he was just so, by the end of his life, was just so decrepit. And this is happening right near the end of his life, by the way, this, this event. Um, as he approached his own death, this is the last thing I'll say about him. As he approached his own death, his final kind of order for the kingdom was to uh, kidnap thousands of popular nobles, nobility in Judea. His final, final kind of order was to kidnap all these uh, nobles and that when he died, they were all supposed to be executed because he wanted to make sure there was mourning through the kingdom. This is who Herod was. Thankfully, that last order was actually not followed. After he died, the nobles were all released. And by the way, I have to, part of me, like, as I was prayerfully considering the story, I thought maybe, maybe if some people didn't follow that order, maybe some of these soldiers did not follow this order. I just hope for God's grace in that. But the point here, the point here is that this is who Herod was, and it's not surprising, therefore, that he would have ordered something like what we read in the scriptures. It actually, in a terrible way, fits what we know that he would do. A rumor of a new king being born, and as we talked about last week, Magi coming to visit them from another country, another kingdom, would be so, would just trigger his paranoia. It's not terribly surprising. But the other thing I want to say, so this doesn't just sit as an abstract history lesson, the other thing I want to say is that Herod's are all over humanity and all over human history. Herod is just one example of how human rulers who accumulate power, especially political power, notoriety, and consider themselves great, tend to, not only tend to, but almost universally perpetuate societal abuses and injustices in, in dark ways. Rulers, human rulers who accumulate power do this over and over and over and over and over again. And so we cannot, we cannot depend on a great, quote-unquote, human ruler to save us. This gets back to what I said a minute ago. We need someone outside of us. We need divine help. We cannot depend on a Herod getting raised up to save humanity. We cannot do it. I think this is a profound gap in our imagination right now, in, particularly in the West. We, we think that politics will save us. We think that a ruler will save us. We think the right person in the throne will save us. This is not going to happen. Any honest look at human history tells us it's not going to happen. It's just another Herod is waiting in the wings. We need divine help. We need help from outside of us. And I'm going to come back to this at the end. I'm going to end soon, and I'm going to come back to this Jeremiah quotation because the thread of hope is powerful in Jeremiah. In that quotation back to Jeremiah 31, I'm going to circle back to that. Um, let's end the story here. Picking up at verse 19. When Herod died, he died in 4 BC. So our calendars are a little off, by the way. Um, Jesus was born at least before, before, before 4 BC. When Herod died... An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in another dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take this child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus, who was Herod's son, one of his sons, Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in another dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Another quotation. So there's darkness and hope in the end of this story too. Even though the family is kept safe, and they are kept safe, there's still a lot of fear and uncertainty here. It says he's afraid to be under Archelaus. Herod is dead, but his son is not much better. His son was much less effective, but not much less evil. So the family avoids that area. Settles in yet another place. I mean, think about that. If you've been through a move, you know how uprooting that is, how destabilizing that is for your family. Like, they've just been through, Jesus' family has been through a lot. There's still a lot of fear and uncertainty. But now, because of this relocation, now Jesus will be known as from Nazareth, which is a huge, important thing for the rest of his life. This is how that happens. This is how that gets set up. And where's the hope here? Joseph hears from God in two more dreams. So it just, in just these span of verses, he's heard from God in three dreams and acted upon them, which communicates to me a, f- a few things. It communicates that God is striving to communicate with this family, but also it communicates to me that Joseph and Mary and the family are striving to listen. What, we don't know, but I wonder, I just wonder, what kind of spirituality did they cultivate in their own lives to be able to hear from God in such a way and be confident acting on it? The family was willing to listen. And God, as I said, God strove to communicate with them and strove to keep this family safe. And so what I want to say about that before we end is that without responding, here we have a violent leader accumulating power, trying to hold on to power with a death grip and through violence in Herod. And without responding to a violent leader with his own violence or force or coercion, God sets in motion events that will institute a new kingdom with a new king that will supplant and take over Herod's kingdom and every kingdom after him. God is setting things into motion through this story that to, to start and launch that new kingdom, which we can all be a part of. God, through Jesus, is taking, and listen to this, God is taking back rule and reign from the Herods of our world. God is taking it back. Through the birth of this child and keeping him safe. Now, I could try to spin this, right? I could spin this story right here. I could say, God, yeah, God kept Jesus safe. There's, a, there's our happy ending. And that's true. Because of this, Jesus was safe. Because of this, Jesus went on to do his ministry, his healings, his miracles, his exorcisms. He went on to die. He went on to resurrect. He went on to start the kingdom that we're a part of. That is all true. But there's still part of that that leaves me a little cold because everything else still happened. Terrible things still happened. And I'm just going to, I'm going to verbalize this. I'm going to vocalize this. Where, where was God for the families of those children? Right? I don't want to shy away from that question. In the spirit of what I said this morning earlier, I don't want to shy away from what's dark. I think that's a question that if, you, if we're honest, it's there. It haunts the text. Why didn't God stop that? That's always the question, right? When something bad happens, why didn't God stop it? Why didn't God step in? Where's the good news in that? Where's the good news for those families? Let me be the first to say I don't have an easy thing to say to that. 
as a parent, I do not have an easy thing to say to that. But I do think there is still hope. And I don't say that lightly or as a cliche. I do think there is good news. And this is where I want to go back to that Jeremiah quotation. Because again, when a writer like Matthew quotes a prophet or something like Jeremiah, it's a, it's a, it's a signal, it's a flag. It's saying, pay attention to this. Go back and read what that prophet was talking about. And so in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah was a prophet in ancient Israel, and Jeremiah was a prophet in a dark, a dark time. Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel when Israel was losing its kingdom, when the temple was getting destroyed, when they were being shipped off to Babylon under an oppressive power. That was what Jeremiah was ministering to that time. And Matthew quotes, very intentionally, I think, quotes Jeremiah, because part of what happened in the exile as uh, the kingdom was being destroyed, people were being taken prisoner, children were being taken prisoner. And Jeremiah had this to say to ancient Israel at the time. And this is the quotation that was used in Matthew in verse 15 of 31. Jeremiah is saying, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is referring to the children being carried off into captivity. But Jeremiah goes on to say this. This is also what the Lord says. In the next verse, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. Your children will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your descendants. Your children will return to their own land. This is what Matthew is signaling us to when he quotes Jeremiah 31. There's hope for your descendants. Your children will be returned. This is a promise of restoration on the other side of loss. For the Israelites who heard this at the time of what they were going through, this was a promise that, they, that the exile would end, that things would be returned, that they'd be renewed in their own land. For us, as we read this, as we read the story of Jesus, for us, this is a promise. This is a promise that while it may appear, it may appear that death and evil and corruption are rampant right now, it may appear that they are the most powerful thing right now, but it is a promise that they are not. They are not ultimate. I don't know why bad things happen. I don't know why the exile happened, per se. I don't know why bad things are happening right now. I'll be the first to say I don't have a cliche or pat answer to that. I don't think any of us can say with confidence that we know why bad things happen, why difficult things go on. In fact, if someone tells you they can, I would tell you probably don't listen to them. But I can say, I can proclaim right now that on the other side of those things, I believe in renewal. I believe in restoration. I believe in resurrection. I believe the children will be returned. And man, I, don't, I want you to hear this in the spirit that I'm saying it in. I do not mean this as cold comfort because the grief is real. The grief of these families was real. The grief of everyone in human history who has lived under Herod's is real. Death is real. Loss is real. Jesus, standing outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, still wept bitterly with angry tears at death. Even though he knew he was about to call him out. He knew he was about to call him out. He would live again and he still wept. Grief is real. 
And therefore, proclaiming resurrection is not about minimizing or papering over what's wrong. I think that proclaiming resurrection, holding to Jesus' resurrection, is actually the very thing that equips us to go through what's wrong. Pain, loss, death, evil. I think it is precisely that that equips us. Resurrection is what equips us to say to Herods of the world, you might look powerful right now, but you actually are not my ultimate king. You are not. I do not serve you. I know the one I do serve. I know the one who has called me into his kingdom of self-giving love, his kingdom of peace, his kingdom of perfect justice, and I will follow him. I will follow him even into and through death because he went first and he walked out of the tomb. I'm with that king because that king loves me and loves you. I think the only thing we can say in the face of evil in our world is resurrection. Can't explain why it happens, but I can't explain that God is raising the dead. This this icon, I love this icon. It's um it's the resurrected Jesus trampling over death and pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave. I think it's very powerful to meditate on. Because even Adam and Eve will be renewed. God is about this work. And God is not about it from a distance, but God is about it by going through it. And that's the God that we believe in. That's the God that we serve. And I believe that God is renewing us and is with us. He's with you, whatever you're going through right now. And that's, I want to leave this picture up while we go to communion. So if I can have a couple of people, um, a couple of people from the LT come up and grab the cups. Um, Thank you, Joy. Um, Joy will come around and hand out the cups, um, and Ken as well. I'm going to guide us through communion, and we'll sing one song afterwards. Um, the song we're going to sing is actually Revelation song, which is very fitting because we believe that things will be right in the end. But I invite you to take the cup and uh, wait for me to guide us through this, and we'll take the, we'll take the elements together. But I encourage you to reflect on resurrection as you take this, um, the cracker and the juice. Resurrection, this is almost a cliche, but resurrection does not happen without death. Jesus himself said, unless a seed is planted in the ground and dies, it will not bear life. And this practice we do every week, communion, points us to the, the very real death that our Savior and King and Lord went through. The juice points to the spilled blood. The crackers points to the, thank you, the broken flesh. And that's why we do it. We do it because every time we do this, we proclaim his death. We proclaim his resurrection until he comes. And he says he would drink this with us in the new kingdom. So I invite you to open the top of your cup, take out the wafer.
You can dip it in the juice. And imagine sitting with Jesus at the dinner table with his followers and him breaking bread and saying to you, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he poured the cup, poured the wine, handed it to his followers similarly and said, this is my blood spilled for the new covenant. A covenant that is not, it's not possible to break that covenant. God will make all things new and he will drink this with us in the new kingdom. So I invite you to take and drink. Lord, help us be a community. Pray with me. Help us be a community that is so equipped with hope, not in a shallow way, not in a cliche way, not in a trite way, but so equipped with hope and resurrection that we can look at death. We can look at evil. And we can be filled with peace in our world. Lord, we thank you for the good news this morning. We thank you that you are taking back rule from Herod. You are our king, Lord. We serve you and no other. And we proclaim, even if we don't always feel like this is true, Lord, I proclaim right now that we know sin and death and evil do not have the last word over us. That your love, your goodness, your resurrection, your new life do. Help us be aware of your Holy Spirit enough to cling to that this morning. And if any one of us can't individually, send us someone who can for us. Equip us as a community to be powerfully enlivened by your gospel. In your holy name, amen.